Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the May scavenger hunt on today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. Yes, it is the end of June, and I am just now getting out the review episode for my May scavenger hunt endeavor, but it has taken me this long to watch the movies for that month, and finally to find the time to record uh, this long episode uh, for those movies. Um, If you've been following along at home, then you're more than well versed on why this has taken so long for me to put out. But if you haven't been, in short summary, uh, I have just uh, welcomed another person into my life uh, in the form of a girlfriend, and that has occupied quite a bit of my time, and I'm not upset by that in the least. So, without any further ado, let us finally, 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 finally talk about this scavenger hunt. Um, So, just like uh, April, uh, I'm going to go through the superlatives first, and then we'll jump into the top ten at the end of this thing. In between those two things, I'll address uh, Moran's predictions, and we'll kind of see just how close he came uh, now that he he has predicted uh, this month's films down to the hundreds Uh, Out of a hundred, I mean. But before we get to that, we have ten superlative categories to touch on. Um, So let's do it. The first category in the superlatives for May 2017 is Biggest Surprise. And this was the most difficult category this month. Um, The films that were good were ones I thought were going to be good for the most part. The films that were bad were ones I thought were going to be bad. Um, so it really came down to a different, uh, a a different qualification for what this category was about. Um, and the same thing will be true when we get to biggest disappointment, uh, because ultimately the biggest surprise is a film that I expected to be in the top 10 at the end of the month, given the, uh, swath of films that I had chosen. And that film is from Russia with love. Now, I, I enjoyed From Russia With Love. I thought it was very good. I loved the I loved Sean Connery in it. Um, it is my favorite Connery Bond film that I've seen so far, although I have not seen all of them. Uh, there's always going to be more to see uh, as far as Bond films for me, for a while anyway. I've, I'm maybe halfway into the whole Bond catalog, so uh, I'm not quite the Bond completionist that you might have expected. However, uh, the reason that this was, for me, the biggest surprise is because I, while I did think that I would like this film, I didn't think it would be quite as good as it was. Uh, you know, I've, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Craig as Bond, and I, I like that approach to the character, um, particularly Casino Royale and um, um, Skyfall. But most of the older Bond films, whether or not I enjoyed them, I didn't generally think of them as being very good movies. I 
liked their sort of silliness, their campiness, their gaunt suave, but they never really, none of them, I th- I don't think, have ever really breached the 70 ra- rating from me until From Russia With Love. And finally, this did, uh, which I was very pleased with and very happy to put into the spreadsheet. So in that respect, you know, it was kind of a surprise. I, it, it was a surprise. I liked it more than I thought I was going to. And I was very pleased by the outcome. Um, so for those reasons, uh, I had to award from Russia with love, the biggest surprise superlative this month. Um, and we'll talk more about that movie later. Um, moving on to biggest disappointment, uh, kind of for the same reasons, but in the opposite direction than from Russia with love, uh, biggest disappointment focuses on a film that while I didn't expect it to be very good, um, was actually not as enjoyable as I thought it was going to be, despite the fact that I didn't expect it to be any good. And that film is Highlander. Uh, Highlander fell very low in this month's ratings, rankings, but I still expected to have fun with it. Um, you know, the there can only be one moniker that this film sort of inspired is one that most people are familiar with, that most people quote and reference frequently. And I always thought, yeah, this isn't going to be very good. But given the sort of history and reputation that the film has, it's got to be enjoyable campiness, right? Like it had to be so bad it's good in a sense. And it wasn't. It really wasn't. You know, once again, Christopher Lambert strikes and I, I just found him to be completely miserable and awful and only further solidified the fact that I just don't like watching him in anything he's in. Um, So for those reasons, Highlander is given the biggest disappointment award for May. Next up we have the worst film, uh, which was, I thought it was going to be a much tighter race than it actually was and uh, turned out to be fairly straightforward um, with only two films uh, being awarded and um, or no, I guess more than two films. No, two films getting a half star rating for me from this month uh, and both of them being films that I watched quite early on in the actual month of May. Uh, But the one that won out in the end is She's the One from 1996 directed by Edward Burns, starring Edward Burns as well as Michael McGlone, Cameron Diaz, Jennifer Aniston, Amanda Peet, Leslie Mann, uh, and John Mahoney. Um, Pretty 90s cast right there, and uh, all of those people have done, uh, maybe not Michael McGlone, but everyone else besides him have been in some great films at times in their careers, and have left notable marks on the cinematic and television uh, worlds. However, this film, this conglomerate of these people, came together to be absolutely atrocious. Just 
actually the worst thing imaginable. Um, I'm not a I'm not a big fan. I think Amanda Peet is probably my most the most liked per cast member of this movie for me, and she's not in it very often, and she doesn't get to do much. This and this was kind of before she, I think, before she really matured into the actress that she is today. However, she and Jennifer Aniston and Cameron Diaz all look like gods when they com- when they're set next to Edward Burns and Michael McGlone. Michael McGlone is a name that I'm really not that familiar with, um, but I saw his face in this movie, and uh, you know it's just oh it's just disgusting. You know this is the only movie I've seen him in according to Letterboxd. Uh, and I'm not looking forward to seeing him in anything ever again. And I hope I never have to. I'm sure I will at some point, but uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Whereas Edward Burns is a little bit more hit and miss. Um, you know, you can't really fault him on like things like Saving Private Ryan. But... Uh, he's been in a lot of not so good things. Um, like I don't particularly find the holiday very enjoyable, um, and then some other movies that I haven't seen but that I know their reputations of are Twenty Seven Dresses, Alex Cross, One Missed Call, um, and now she's the one. Um, I guess he's pretty, but that's. There's just so many better actors, and he directed this thing too, um, and wrote it. He just, uh, I don't, not a fan. I don't know if he wrote or directed anything else, but I hope not. Like, I hope this bombed so hard. Oh man, he directed a lot of movies, and he wrote a lot of movies. Oh man, I guess he wrote and directed the same movies for the most part. Yeah, I, I, I could I could be happy never seeing anything associated with Edward Burns again either. So, worst movie of the month, she's the man. Let's move into so now that let's get out of the, the negative superlatives here and jump into the positive ones with funniest film. Um funniest film was a toughie this month. Uh you know it, what film did I laugh the most at is kind of the shorthand, short criteria for what I use for this movie, for this pick, and uh, I laughed at a lot of different movies here. Um, you know, you had Limelight, uh, you know, Chaplin, always funny even in drama. Um, the Adams Family, very funny. The producers, funny. Um, Caddyshack this month, Strange Brew, so a lot of good humor here. But at the end of the day, it really came down to two movies, and uh, they ended up splitting the funniest film and most forgettable film categories. Um, or not, fu- no, funniest and most entertaining film categories. My, excuse me. And funniest film went to Caddyshack. I laughed most at Caddyshack. I didn't give it a great rating or review, but it's very funny. Um, and I think its individual scenes are very funny. I don't think they connect very well to each other. I think it's pretty roughshod editing and, and things like that. 
but uh, you know, I think you just can't deny um, Bill Murray and Rodney Dangerfield and Chevy Chase. The three of them are hilarious together. Um, and actually, I thought I'd like Bill Murray the most out of this cast. And it turned out to be Rodney Dangerfield. He really you know, lit a fire under this film and was the most enjoyable aspect of it. And I, I was just, I was kind of surprised and, and impressed that that was the case. Um, but pleased, you know, and, and kind of let down by the Bill Murray of it all. Not that he was bad, just, I don't know, I mean, I guess it was kind of something that was built up so much. And uh, it just, it didn't, it didn't win me over as much as I expected it to. Um, but nevertheless, incredibly funny film. And a staple in in the comedy genre, even what is it the seventies the eighties? Yeah, nineteen eighty. Even thirty seven years later, still uh, a very talked about film. Moving on to most powerful film. Uh, this uh, started out as cries and whispers, but was quickly overtaken and never to be relinquished by The Human Condition 2, Road to Eternity. Um, sequel to The Human Condition 1. Um, I forget the subtitle to the first one. It is No Greater Love. Human Condition 1, No Greater Love. Uh, in this three-hour epic um, sequel from Masaki Kobayashi, we follow the main, our main character, Kaji, as he continues to be in the army, currently in the Japanese Kwangtung army, uh, despite the fact that he is a pacifist and anti-military, um, yet he is just an excellent uh, combatant and soldier. Uh, unfortunately, he is someone who is very much set in his ways of justice and fairness and uh, is is kind of pressed to the limits in that regard but the reason this film is so incredibly powerful is that through Kaji we just see the horrors of war we see the brutality and the violence that is genuinely unnecessary you know in and outside of war it looks to be uh, you, 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 he finds himself in these situations where he only has one option to survive and that is genuinely generally the road less traveled or, or not even a road like it's it's not even the road less traveled it is a path that no one wants to or is genuine is usually willing to take um uh, towards the end of the film, Kaji is forced to uh, smother and kill uh, a fellow soldier simply to keep him quiet to ensure his own survival, lest the other man kill them both. And it is very difficult and very uh, tough to look away from this movie. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of the first film. I'm a big fan of this second film, and I cannot wait to finish off this trilogy and uh, just see what could possibly escalate things 
any further in this in, in this series. Um, so the the most powerful film this month, The Human Condition 2: Road to Eternity, uh, for May 2017. Most forgettable film. Uh, is actually this is the easiest month I've had because it's been so long since I've seen some of these movies I literally don't remember parts of most of them but the film I remember the least uh, is We Are Marshall uh, which fell in the middle of a pack this month uh, but I know that it's about football and I know that Matthew McConaughey is in it and I know that he gives a semi-rousing speech at some point um, like, I know about the tragedy that befell the school, but I don't know what happens in the movie. I don't know if they win the games that they play. I don't know. I think Anthony Mackie's in it. And there's something about freshmen. But I don't, I don't really know anything else about this movie. Uh, I gave it a 41. I think it's a little bad, but not awful. Um, you know, it just kind of hits all the stereotypical notes of a sports movie, so I could probably guess some of the plot elements to it. But uh, for the most part, it was largely unmemorable. And so most forgettable film this month is We Are Marshall. Most entertaining film. I mentioned that uh, this film was a near win in Funniest Film, but I ended up splitting two categories with Caddyshack. Um, and it was very close, you know, I laughed a little bit more in Caddyshack, but I was a little bit more entertained in The Addams Family. That's right, The Addams Family. I was greatly entertained by this film, um, and um, it's a shame I didn't start, didn't watch it a long time ago. Um, it's, it's just, it's got that Tim Burton macabre feeling to it, but with a little bit more humor sensitivity uh, sensibility which I think served the film well and helped to separate it from many notable comparisons that it would probably receive to Tim Burton um, and that's a style that I very much enjoy it's got an incredibly eclectic cast um, from Raul Julia to uh, Angelica Angelica Houston um, to Christina Ritchie and, and so on and so forth that are all just on their games and fantastic and I love just the story and, and the way that this film um, has a heart to it like that is its greatest uh, asset and because of the heart that it has it's able to uh, make great use of its humor and entertainment factor and, and getting you invested in what's happening in the story and that's the, the best thing in it and that's the best way to be entertaining is investment uh, so the adams family most entertaining film will come up again later on in the episode and uh, i'll touch a little bit more on it at that time next uh, we have the best category so best performance um, man, this was not a great uh, month for best performance. Um, it really was between, like, I think three or four different people by the end of the month. And, um, you know, as much as I wanted to, I, I really could not give this award to 
uh, I couldn't give it to Charles Chaplin. Um, I think Limelight is just too long, and I think that his performance in it is is a little caricaturish. Um, I wanted to give this to Kaji in Human Condition, but I think that his performance is not as impressive given the three hours of uh, time he spent in it in the first film. And so it, it, it was probably, while, while still incredibly impressive, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I think he's a fantastic actor, uh, I think that there was slightly more, slightly more uh, impressive acting in Cries and Whispers from Ingrid Thulin. Uh, Ingrid Thulin um, from uh, Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers, who plays um, the who plays Karin. I'm not proud of pronouncing that wrong. Karin, 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 uh, in in the film. Huh, man, it, this is a difficult film. Um, one of, in my opinion, Bergman's more difficult films to to watch and understand uh, and and um, I don't know it's 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 very similar to persona in a lot of ways uh, persona being my favorite Bergman film and yet I think that it fails to meet the same level in a lot of ways but that is not the case with the performance of uh, Ingrid Thulin, who is absolutely magnificent as Corinne, uh, who is one of the sisters to Agnes, uh, Agnes played by Harriet Anderson, um, and to just kind of watch as her two sisters um, start to sort of revert back into the misery and fear and um, disgust that they experienced when they were younger uh, as they sort of weather this sickness and cancer that Agnes is going through with her you know these sympathy emotions is is just miserable I, I just the way that they're able you know Corinne and Maria uh, Ingrid Thulin and Liv Ullman are both fantastic in this and as the sisters and the way that they experience these emotions and these pains but I think Ingrid Thulin is just able to capture the visceralness and and uh, the viscosity of this this role much better than Liv Ullman is able to do and so that's why I had to give Thulin the edge very close though um, you know it really did come down to Ingrid Thulin and um, who, uh, what's what's his name? Uh, Kaji from the Human Condition or Tatsuya Nakadai. Um, so close, and uh, ultimately, I'm very pleased that like it's it's foreign performers that are that are really um, making waves in this category in most months. As it turns out, I'm I'm very pleased by that because I'm. Definitely not as versed in uh, foreign cinema as I wish I was. So, best performance, Ingrid Thulin, Cries and Whispers. Uh, 
the ninth superlative category, Best Direction. Um, so this was, for a long time, uh, actually going to go to... Um, what's his name? Oh, nope, not the year. I want the movie. This was actually going to go to George Stevens for Giant. I think he does a great job directing Giant. Uh, but unfortunately... It's 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 impossible to compete with, you know. Giant is an epic film, very long, three and a half hours, but and in any other month it probably does win out over uh, uh, Masaki Kobayashi for the Human Condition. Not this month, um, or in any other month it probably does win out, but because of Masaki Kobayashi for the Human Condition, it cannot win. The Watching those these films uh, is is just an experience unlike many others. Uh, you know, it is watching someone who has a story and is precise and absolutely determined to depict it and explain it and tell it in the way that it is not only meant to be told, but in the way that it needs to be told. It it it's just it's a directing. Um, expertise on a level that you know even someone even with such names as George Stevens and Igmar Bergman in this month's films Charles Chaplin uh, another great directing and, and behind the camera presence cannot just cannot keep up with what uh, Masaki Kobayashi is doing with his camera uh you know, he made these films um, in 1959. Uh, the first two were made, released in 1959. The last one released in 1961. And for the time period that he put those out, put these films out, it's just incredible what he's able to, what the scenes he's able to shoot, the settings he's able to reach, and, and the backdrops and the performances. It's it's all. The, the the whole conglomerate comes together in in a way that you know is you know parallel to something like uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know that's the kind of level we're working with. Except he did not have the resources uh, that Peter Jackson had for those films, or in my opinion, he did not have, and he also did not have quite the talented ensemble. You know, his films revolve around a single character, whereas Lord of the Rings films have a huge cast to lean on, and, and there's no one character that really has to carry the weight of those movies. So I, I just I have to tip my hat to Masaki Kobayashi for The Human Condition 2, Road to Eternity, and, and winning Best Direction for May 2017. Absolutely incredible. Stunning work. Stunning work. And finally, for this month, um, the last superlative is best scene. Uh, best scene is is another really difficult one. Uh, I I I struggled with this category as well. I bounced around a lot. Um, I wanted. I I nearly made it the the strangling scene from Human Condition toward the end of the film. 
but I think there was one other there was one scene that I think was executed just a little bit better um, ultimately and that is from a short film about killing by Christoph Kieslowski uh, where you see the cleaning of an execution room uh, this you know this scene is absolutely gut-wrenching you watch as a man slowly cleans off an execution room he wipes it down he I guess again it's been like over a month since I've seen most of these movies I'm trying to remember the intricate details I believe it's like he sterilizes it he 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 adjusts everything back into position and it's all done with the calm cold collected eye of someone you know washing the dishes in the sink or or you know wiping down their stovetop as if this isn't a place that has just killed a man that is in the process of being about to kill a man it is incredible that you get such coldness and such um dispassionate emotion from the camera on this scene i don't know how he did it i don't know what he i don't know how he's able to accomplish this in such a brutal way but this one moment is is the most shocking in my opinion from this film which is filled with many shocking elements um and so for me the best scene of the month was the execution room cleaning in short film about killing from Christoph Kieslowski. Um, and those are the superlatives for this month. Um, now we are going to move on to the uh, predictions sent to me by Mar- Marin, Maran, sorry. <laughs> the predictions sent to me by Maran and uh, just how well he did this month. I'm going to try to keep this segment as short as I can, um, but there's a lot of data here that I'm really interested to get into. Uh, so let's just kind of go from the beginning. Um, Moran rated every single film that he thought I, or what he thought I was going to give the film, give that rating. I have placed his predictions alongside what the actual rating I gave those films was. I have then found the difference between the two, um, if he was under or if he was over. That's um, a separate uh, sec- uh, category. And then I've also added um, his own personal ratings, which he shared with me, for the films of these that I, uh, he had seen. Um, so, just to be clear, um, he has seen... Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13... 17 of the 30 films uh, himself. And I think... I think I would say, based on what I'm seeing here, that his predictions line up more with the actual ratings I gave the films than his personal feelings. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll address those things as we get there. Um, off the bat, I will say that he did not hit anything on the nose. Uh, but there are a lot of things he did that I think uh, that did really freaking well. He he did. Pretty good job, I would have to say, all things considered. Uh, so I'm going to leave it at that. 
and, and let's jump into this. So first thing I'm going to say is that <clears throat> if I if I sort the films based on where he felt the the so based on what his predictions were, if I ranked the films by those numbers, uh, four, five, six, seven films that he predicted would be in my top ten are actually in my top ten. Uh, with one of those other films being, um, one of those other films being a film I rated above a fifty-nine, uh, but two of those films being rated below fifty. Uh, so he misjudged a couple of them um and uh that's gonna happen you know we we can't i couldn't possibly expect him to be nearly close on on everything um likewise um let's see he as far as star rating goes which is how he predicted these the first time around he nailed the star rating on one two three four five six seven um uh, eight eight of the 30 films he was perfect on the star rate which i think is actually lower than his last predictions round of predictions i'd have to go back and check i think that that's lower though uh he also correctly predicted what my number one film of the month would be um so when we get to that uh kudos good job then sorting by the difference uh so he actually ha <laughs> predicted 15 films higher than they actually ended up being and 15 films lower than they actually ended up being, uh, which is pretty surprised. I was very surprised. Uh, mostly, most of the, this, the time, uh, the higher rated films that, I've, that I rated, uh, he went lower and the lower films I rated, he went higher. So um, um, his ratings were sort of a little bit more uh, centered on the middle of the rating system, while my actual ratings went a little bit further to the edges of the 0 to 100 scale. The greatest difference of all 30 films was a difference of 44 points uh, that he went over on a rating. Um, and that film was Nashville. His prediction was a 75. My actual rating was a 31. Um, if I if we go back to his little write up here, um, he he qualifies his predictions by referencing my ratings for shortcuts and the player, both in the mid to high 70s, um, and goes on to say that uh, Nashville is even bigger loser scope and environment than shortcuts. Um, and uh, I would definitely agree. I, I think he's spot on there. Um, Nashville was just very wide, very expansive. And for those exact reasons, I think it kind of burst through the limits of like how well this kind of an ensemble can work for me. Now, he gave this film a 96 from his own personal ratings. Uh, so an even wider disparity between our own personal opinions on this movie. But... Uh, for me, it just it, it it spread itself so thin, and it wasn't until the very final maybe 10, 15 minutes of the movie that I was actually like invested in anything that was happening, and uh, from so that was a very big problem for me. On the other end of the spectrum, he underrated uh, the most underrated film he predicted was 
Caddyshack by 32 points. Um, he predicted it would be a 24. I actually gave it a 56. Uh, like I already mentioned, it wasn't great, and I, I definitely was very disappointed in a lot of ways, but I was pleasantly surprised in a lot of different other ways, and so it ended up kind of balancing itself out into the middle ground. Um, and to kind of go back to what he said, uh, he considers the film uh, pretty unfunny, but if you like Ronnie Dangerfield jokes, this is the movie for you. I genuinely didn't don't find Ronnie Dangerfield to be, to be that funny on most occasions, but I don't know. For some reason, it just kind of worked. I think his character and his presence was just very different from everything else that was happening in the movie, and I think that that contrast made it enjoyable. Uh, he goes on to say that Chevy Chase is easily the best thing here. Um... And I, other than Rodney Dangerfield, I completely agree. I thought Chevy Chase was fantastic. Uh, his comedic timing was spot on. Um, he suggested that I would find this film very dated. I do think it is very dated. Uh, not in the worst ways, but definitely not in the best ways either. Um, I, don't, I don't at all hold it up to be a pinnacle of comedic genius. And I was very disappointed by Bill Murray. But... Um, I did see sparks of and elements of why many people revere this film uh, as being a comedic, a comedic giant in the industry, but I don't personally believe that it is that thing. So, um, let's start off with the, let's jump in with, into the nitty gritty with some of the better uh, predictions that he's had. His best prediction, he was off by just one point. Uh, predicting predicted fame would be a 57 it turned it out turned out to be a 58 and uh, man very very close and his own rating is a 55 so all these numbers very very tightly knit together um, then from Russia with love and strange brew he under predicted by two points uh, 71 to 73 and 52 to 54 uh, giant he was under by three points um, 79 to 76 and then uh, Last Temptation of Christ and Devil in a Blue Dress he over predicted by 4 points 66 to 62 and 69 to 65 now all told um, the 15 films that he over predicted he was over by a sum of 257 points which is a lot uh, need I say more and on the 15 films he under predicted he was under by 192 points. So on the month, he ended up being over predicting on average by, by a total sum of 65 or an average of two points per film. Uh, which, again, I, I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it must be to predict a rating out of 100 for like one film for somebody else, let alone 30. Uh, so... I'm just simply impressed that he went out of his way to do this I, and, and um, very flattered that he would take the time. And uh, I think, as far as I'm concerned, he did a pretty great job here. So, um, so that I don't completely ruin what the top 10 is going to be once we get to it, I'm going to start at the bottom, go through uh, the prediction, actual ratings, and difference until we get to what will be the top 10 and then we'll transition into that segment there. So, starting at number 30, uh, She's the One, I gave that a four. 
his prediction was a 42 um, and he overpredicted overpredicted by 38 points um, his second highest over prediction in the month um, number 29 pokemon jirachi wishmaker i gave it an 11 he predicted a 40 or a difference of 29 points the third highest difference um, to the positive uh, number 28 is after sex uh, which he predicted would be the lowest rated film of the month um, with a 14 so he actually under predicted after sex by six points i gave it a 20. Um, flatliners number 27 i gave it 22 he predicted a 29 so he over predicted there by seven points um, but still very close i think anything under 10 points is is impressive in my opinion uh, number 26 death sentence i also gave it 22. Uh, his prediction here was a 47 so he was over by about 25 points um, and uh, that's another pretty substantial misfire uh, then that moving on to highlander number 25 uh, he predicted a 30 I gave it a 24 he was over by six points pretty close there beowulf I uh, gave a 27 he predicted a 36 so within that 10 point range he did he was over by nine points nashville as i said before the highest or the greatest difference in points of all the movies i gave a 31 he predicted a 75 difference of 44 points teenage mutant ninja turtles secret of the ooze i give a 33 he predicted a 52 a difference of 19 points a lot like love i also give a 33 he predicted a 57 a difference of 24 points to the positive uh, the robe i gave a 36 he gave a he predicted 50 for a difference of 14 points i'm a little tighter there uh, robin hood at number 19 i gave a 38 he predicted 43 a difference of five points pretty close uh, we are marshall um he number 18 uh, i gave it a 41 he predicted a 58 for a difference of 17 points uh, the phantom of the opera I gave a 46 he gave a, he predicted 39 so under predicted by seven points that's the um second film going heading upward that he's predicted under on um the other being after sex down at 28 um, and notably he gave the phantom of the opera a seven which is the lowest rated film of all of these that he's seen um, so um that just for me indicates a you know i you know great on him for like bucking his own personal feelings of this film and sort of jumping up his predictions uh, to a lot closer to where i actually ended up uh, number 16 strange brew i gave a 54 he predicted a 52 so we under by two points caddyshack uh i gave it a 56 as i said he predicted 24 so he was under by 32 points fame 58 to 57 he was under by one point number 13 broken blossoms i gave it a 60 he predicted a 43 under by 17 points number 12 my son my son what have you done uh he i gave it a 62 he predicted a 46 for a difference of 16 points and lastly number 11 last temptation of christ i gave it a 62 he predicted a 66 for a difference of four points now as i was just going through that something else occurred to me if i only take the prediction misses or the the prediction differences of the films that he has seen 
and rated um, just to kind of see if there's if that um, so based on these numbers uh, the films he has seen the sum difference is 26 or an average of one and a half points above of for the 17 films that he has seen uh, which is a little bit closer than the total average um, but on the other hand this includes the three biggest misfires that he had in she's the one nashville and caddyshack uh, but it includes the closest the many of the closest films he's had fame strange brew uh, from russia with love uh, last temptation of christ at only four points robin hood only five points uh, highlander flatliner six and seven points uh, so I would say that generally uh, the films that he has seen, he has a little bit better idea of, um, which I think makes perfect sense. I, I would completely have expected that. Uh, outside of a couple of notable ones that um, he predicted very closely having not seen them, uh, I think that some of those were pretty easy to telegraph where my ratings would be based on other films uh, like them. But... Uh, I think I think that's a pretty notable notable statistic. So uh, those are that's all the films from 30 to 11, and it is now time for us to enter the top 10. Starting with our number 10 film today, we have. The 1971 film, uh, directed by Sam Peckinpah, starring Dustin Hoffman, Susan George, Peter Vaughn, uh, among others, that was predicted to be rated a 41 by Miran, um, and actually ended up being rated a 63. Uh, so we're starting pretty low uh, in the top 10, but and uh, unfortunately we're not going to get super high. Uh, as this list goes forward, but um, that number 10 film is Straw Dogs. Uh, Straw Dogs is the last film that I saw for this month's hunt, and, you know, it it was enjoyable enough, uh, you know, it, it definitely kept my attention better than a lot of the other movies uh, that I saw throughout the course of the hunt, and... I guess, like, I, I mentioned this, um, or maybe I didn't mention this, I, um, uh, it's in my review, actually, on, on Letterboxd, uh, but I, I was kind of let down by what I perceived to be, um, or what I, what I assumed to be a film that was going to be incredibly violent and without mercy, and it's violent you know it's it's definitely not for the faint of heart but it's quite simply not you know even by today's standards it's it's mild in my opinion in my opinion you know it's definitely you know i i do think that it would be very um risque for the 70s early 70s you know it's in that bonnie and clyde era but ultimately i think it ends up being falling short of truly be being something uh, 
memorable in that regard. Um, whereas something like a Bonnie and Clyde, I think, is far uh, far better with its uh, with its depiction of violence and better with its uh, levels of violence and how they portray those throughout the film. Um, uh, so Straw Dogs, I, I think it's good. I, I think it, it's barely good. Uh, and I, I think Hoffman and George actually are fantastic as a couple in this film. And they, they, you really see the, the tension and strained relationship that the two have with each other. And sort of the evolution of that relationship as the film progresses. But I think a lot of the sort of local hooligan people who are the ones antagonizing Hoffman and, and George, there's no, there's really not enough motivation there. It's, it's very mindless. It's very nonsensical. And there's, there just, there just isn't enough of a story. And I think that's my biggest problem with this film. Um, and my biggest problem with these sorts of films, revenge types films, um, you know, for the most part, uh, but it ends up being a good movie and an enjoyable watch for the most part, oh, just decidedly so. So that's number 10, Straw Dogs, uh, a difference of 22 uh, to the negative uh, from Maron on this one. Uh, he himself rated it a 55, so a little bit closer um, to, to his actual feelings than his actual prediction. Uh, moving on to number nine. Uh, number nine is a 1995 film directed by Carl Franklin, starring Denzel Washington, Tom Sizemore, Jennifer Beals, Don Cheadle, Maury Chaikin, among others. Uh, this is a film called Devil in a Blue Dress. Moran predicted a 69. He was four points high because it is actually a 65 for me. Um, Going right in that sweet spot in the middle of the good films in that 60s. And the, the reason that this film uh, manages to elicit such a... You know, I think it's generally a rudimentary film, kind of paint-by-numbers. Uh, but Denzel, for the most part, um, is able to kind of put this push this film over the top of average... Uh, you know, he, he, his character Rollins is not a detective, which is, I think, the most interesting conceit that the film portrays because he is a detective in the movie. Like, he, all he does in this movie is detective work. And watching um, Denzel sort of portray this character in that way and, like, with the backstory of, like, well, he's not really a detective and... He, he just it feels so authentic so real and every twist kind of in one sense like pushes the story in a new direction but at the same time it's also slowly screwing into screwing Rollins character into this detective archetype piece by piece and I actually I absolutely loved that uh, sort of methodology behind things also, cannot forget to mention Don Cheadle, who puts in a, a fantastic supporting role, uh, supporting performance. I thought he was just ridiculously insane in, in, in this movie, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention his his character, Mouse. Um, and then it can't, you know, you also have to consider, you know, this is, um, 
you know, it's a very it's a period piece film, uh, which uh, with ha- which has a black man as the star, not a white man. Uh, which in '95, I guess we were already into the transition of of that being a, a something that we see more and more frequently. But you know, Denzel, man, really paves the way for films that star black actors and and i think that he does a great job in this movie of showing just how promising any actor can be if given the starring leading role and you know i know you know 95 denzel had already proven himself 10 times over as one of the best actors going uh but but you know this is a great sort of vintage performance from him 22 years ago um and I think I think he's he's absolutely fantastic in this movie. So, Devil in a Blue Dress, uh, number nine for the May scavenger hunt. Moving on to number eight, this is a 1967 film directed by Mel Brooks, uh, starring Gene Wilder, uh, Zero Mostel, Dick Sean, Kenneth Mars, among others. Uh, this is a film uh, that Moran predicted I would give an 80. Uh, actually gave it in 68 so he was 12 points high and you know that's kind of par for the court you know it, it's tough you know mel brooks has put out some great films in my opinion uh you know i'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of his work uh, particularly young frankenstein blazing saddles and uh, Spaceballs. i think all three of those are great and just classic comedies in and of themselves and robin hood men in tights a little less so but i still it's still a good movie but uh, producers i think is far closer to the robin hood men in tights um level of of quality than it is to the others in my personal opinion and that's why it kind of falls a little lower than moran's prediction and you know kind of my own benchmark for where most of mel brooks films end up um, uh, which is fine, you know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't begrudge at that. It's a funny movie. Uh, it doesn't quite pound in the laughter as often as it needs to. I think this movie is much better as a musical. Uh, but and and I, I even, you know, even the the remake in two thousand and five, I think, is just okay. I, I, it's unfortunate, you know, I wanted, it's, I hesitate to say it's a disappointment, because it's not, it's a good movie, but it's just, it's a very, it's just a, just a good movie, it never quite breaks free, you know, it's got an insane premise that I think really should have gone, they should have gone harder at this premise, they should have dove deeper into this movie and and really pushed more boundaries and I, I get it was probably pushing a lot of boundaries 40 years ago 50 years ago in 67 but nowadays it simply does not uh does not cut it in that regard um there are still wisps of the edginess that i i think it, it represented at the time but now it doesn't quite have that sort of uh, punch that I think it really needed. Um, it's only 88 minutes, so it's also very short. I think you could have added probably 10 more minutes to this movie. Uh, I whether whether that be with musical numbers, whether that be with punching up the comedy, punching up the script, punching up the 
cast. You know, I think I was actually surprised by how, how much I liked Zero Mostel in this film as uh, Bialystok. Um, and obviously Gene Wilder is is fantastic. He, he's never, never not great in whatever he does. But yeah, I, it just, it left me wanting. And um, this is a great premise, a great story. And neither the films nor the musical have really satisfied my my taste for this this narrative yet uh, and you know I don't know that they'll ever resurrect it for film again but if they do I, I'm optimistic I, I think this I think there's a way to do this even better than it's been done previously uh, so that's number eight this month the producers with a 68. Uh, number seven, a film I haven't really mentioned yet, um, is a 1988 film directed by Kristoff Kieslowski, Kristoff Kieslowski, uh, starring Miroslav Baca, Jerzy Zas, and Alexander Bednarz, among others. Uh, this is this is a short film about killing. Now, originally, I had listed a short film about love as the film I was going to watch for to satisfy this task. However, um, due to uh, accessibility reasons and um, a misreading of the film I was acquiring. Uh, it ended up being a short film about killing instead of a short film about love. So, grain of salt. Uh, Miran's prediction was based on this film being a short film about love. Uh, I don't know that he would really change much about his prediction necessarily, uh, given the small semantic change. Um, but you know, if he if he does, I, I will be happy to rectify that uh, post haste. However, this film I gave a 69 to. Moran predicted a 48, a difference of 21 points to the negative. And this is a slowly slow to start, but but brutal film. Uh, you know, as as it just kind of it's. You know, like like Kozlowski titles it, a short film about killing uh, follows a man who, you know, gets in a taxi, goes out to the middle of nowhere, kills the taxi driver, and kind of leaves you wondering why. And the film does not give you any easy answers. It makes you think about these things in a way that you probably aren't used to thinking about them. And that in and of itself is a fantastic uh method to 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 inspire creativity inspire thought inspire discussion and conversation and debate uh, you know killing is is just the act of it in itself um is is just a horrific event and an indescribable uh, Paranoia. I, I, you know, I, I. It's almost impossible to describe. Um, you know what it means to kill somebody. You know, I've never done it. I, I think most of us haven't. Uh, but to those of us who have, I. You know, whether it be by accident, whether it be um, just a natural occurrence. You know, whether. You know, whether you're in a profession where that's a possibility. You know, doctors, surgeons. Uh, uh, police officers, uh, uh, bodyguards, security officers. These are people who, who you know, just no matter how much you think that it's not going to be you, it's not going to happen with you, you're not going to be on the wrong side or even the right side of the gun, 
um, or whatever weapon it may be, it's it's inevitably going to be somebody. And it doesn't matter if you're taking the bullet, firing the bullet, stabbing the knife, being stabbed. These are all things that are that are going to change the rest of your life for good. Uh, and and what Kozlowski does in this film is. Um, he pinpoints that exact feeling, that exact emotion of, well, you know, you, the viewer, are watching this movie and wondering to yourself, well, how, how can he do that? How can he take these steps with seemingly no motive and, and kill somebody? How can, how can he, uh, he just like go through those motions and, and, and really just seeming you know how do you how do you reconcile that feeling and that that action in your head and i i don't know that you can you know i think obviously it drives a lot of people insane and it drives a lot of people to do the same thing again maybe those are people who are trying to really figure out why it feels the way it feels why does it feel good why does it feel bad why does it feel strange and this is the kind of movie that will get you talking about those things and really asking questions that you haven't asked yourself before. Uh, and, and I think that that's very powerful for a film to do. Now, as a film itself, I think it is good. I think it is really good. I don't think it's, it's you know, it just falls very just one point shy of hitting the 70 benchmark uh, for me because I think it works far better as a discussion piece than it does as a film, and, and you know that's something that can be argued, the semantics over, over that ad nauseum, but uh, for me, I think it's good and, and very thought-provoking, but it doesn't ever branch out into great and, and uh, very good territory. Uh, but I am very much interested in, in taking a look at a lot of Kieselowski's other films, and hopefully they will kind of shine a light on other things that I, I really haven't thought about before. So that's number seven, a short film about killing 69. Number six, um, we're going to go a little cheesier here and, and uh, let the foot up off the gas for a second with 1963's film directed by Terrence Young, starring Sean Connery, Daniela Bianchi, Pedro Armendarez, Lot Lene, Lene, Lot Lenya, maybe I'm not pronouncing that correctly, Robert Shaw, Bernard Lee, Eunice Gason, among others. Uh, and this is From Russia with Love. Uh, Moran predicted a 71. I gave it a 73, so just two points off there. Uh, he himself gave it a 44, so uh, he's not a big fan of this. I was a pretty big fan of this. I think my biggest problem with the older Bond films is that they seem silly, they seem ridiculous, and unlike, say, like The Kingsman or um, films of that ilk, they don't, I think, utilize that silliness well. Uh, but what silliness there is in From Russia With Love, I found to be much better utilized and, and much more... Uh, fascinating to see. Uh, meanwhile, I think the story was better constructed. I think you have a lot more factions in this film, a lot more um, sort of uh, who's on what side questions than 
before, and I think that that is a, a good thing. Um, you know, because in in the world of James Bond, you can never believe what you're looking at. You know, this isn't, and, and you know, sh- you have to do that in a different way than it's being done. It's been done in Mission Impossible. You know, this isn't people wearing different faces most of the time. This is just people whose loyalties lie with an idea and not a person and not a chain of command. And so you have to be on your toes and think like, okay, well, this if this person is only interested in money, who's giving them more money? Where is their loyalty if they're being offered such and such number on his side, such and such amount of gold on this side, such and such rewards on this side? Uh, and, and from Russia with Love, I think, did that quite well um you know again a bond girl is is utilized i think another element of this film that i found refreshing was that i don't think tatiana who uh played by daniela bianchi is is uh relegated to just um eye candy as much as some of the other bond girls have been I, I believe she was given a little bit more to do than the average Bond girl, and I, I appreciate that very much. Um, and, you know, I, I just... Uh, there, there aren't... It's not great. Like, I, there are definitely elements that I think don't come together perfectly. You know, Robert Shaw is fantastic, and, I you know, I would I love the idea of this... Um, German guy who are who's it's basically the or not German Russian guy who's basically a Russian bond essentially uh, but I don't think his element of the story was really given enough agency enough backstory enough motivation so still some qualms with the film and the franchise as a whole I really do think that between that that the for me, anyway, the film franchise peaked uh, with Daniel Craig in in Skyfall um, and Casino Royale. You know, uh, 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 Quantum of Solace is, is very mediocre, if not bad. But I think that uh, Casino Royale and Skyfall are two sides of the same coin of what makes of what Bond can do when when given the proper um team behind him but from rush with love i really enjoyed it and that's why i give it a 73 and that's why it's number six this month from russia with love number six moving on to number five the top five here we go uh this is a 1991 film directed by barry sonnenfeld starring raul julia angelica houston christopher lloyd christina ritchie carol strucken dan hedaya uh, elizabeth wilson Dana Ivey, among others, uh, and that is The Adams Family. Uh, I've been meaning to watch this film for a while, finally was able to slot it into a scavenger hunt, and really liked it, really enjoyed it, gave it a 76, Moran predicted a 62, difference of 14 points, and I just, I just, have a, I just had a great time. I think it's really funny. I think the gags and the characters are hilarious and and enjoyable and great to watch from, you know, Wednesday uh, to Morticia, 
Gomez, Lurch, uh, you know, to, to Uncle Fester. They're just, they span this spectrum, and yet they're all kind of these wacky characters, but they're all wacky in very different ways, and it's just it's just a very enjoyable film. I think it, it, it manages to do Tim Burton, but lighter. Uh, you know, I've said that already, but I just... I found it to be very, very fun, very enjoyable. Um, and in a, in a world, you know, like this, where it doesn't seem like thing, like one, like any of this, these things could happen in the real world, it still manages to make sense. Uh, the, the, the atmosphere and the setting that, you know, Sonnenfeld creates, and I, I just, I just had a hard time not smiling while watching this movie. It's incredibly entertaining, and I'm really looking forward to watching Adam's Family Values. Uh, I've heard it's not as good, and that may be, but I, I just can't wait to kind of experience more from these characters, and um, hopefully it'll be at least somewhat as enjoyable. So that's The Adams Family, number five, with a 76. Number four is a 1972 film directed by Ingmar Bergman, uh, starring Harriet Anderson, Ingrid Thulin, Kari Silvon, Liv Ullman, Erland Josephson, among others. Um, and that is Cries and Whispers. Cries and Whispers, I gave a 78. Uh, Moran predicted a 64, so another difference of 14. He himself gave it a 70, so roughly the same ballpark for our actual thoughts. Uh, and like I mentioned, like this is a, a lot of parallels and similarities to Persona. I think Persona executed the, some similar themes much better, uh, and you know that's no fault of Bergman's by any stretch. You know he had, you know it's hard to kind of approach a similar topic just six years later and and try to reinvent the wheel so to speak um so i i don't fault him in that sense uh you know bergman continues to be a director that finds new ways to challenge me as a viewer uh you know i this is the seventh bergman film i've seen um and his films have ranged from persona which i think is incredible to Fanny and Alexander, which I think is bad. But no matter what the film, I'm always kept on my toes and, and really questioning what I'm watching in a, in a new and interesting way. And so the sort of haunting experience that is Cries and Whispers definitely added to that layer, to those layers. Uh, you know the the uneasiness that he per that permeates through every scene, the acting from all of these incredible women who are just uh, you know just just putting on such incredible performances and and really just trying to outdo themselves with each subsequent scene is is incredible. And not to mention the way this film is shot, the the color red is the only color on the poster and it's the only and, and it's utilized in such an incredibly bizarre fascinating 
and unique way throughout the film. You know, just the angles and the shades of red that are just popping up in, at, at first, what seemed to be unconventional and, and irregular ways, but slowly begin to make more and more sense the further into the film you get. And it's, it's you know, it's like he it's like he's shooting the film through a red lens, and it's not just like a shade of pink, it's not like a, an offshoot of sepia, it's really like visceral, bloody red, and, and it doesn't sound like it works, it sounds like it's a gimmick, it sounds like, you know, he's just experimenting with something that can't possibly succeed, and yet each new shot, each new composition somehow manages to subvert your expectations along the way. Now, uh, I, I again, I do think that this film uh, suffers from retreading a little bit of ground from Persona, uh, as well as um, I think the, the writing and uh, structure are not quite as tight as they, they really need to be to sort of portray the, the the emotions and feelings that I think Bergman is trying to get at, but it is a very, very uh, difficult and, and rewarding watch um, if you're willing to, to fight through all of those things. So that's Cries and Whispers, number four, with a 78. Number three, a film that I haven't really discussed very much uh, this episode, is <coughs> excuse me, is a 1956 epic film directed by George Stevens, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Carol Baker, Jane Withers, Chill Wills, Mercedes McCambridge, Dennis Hopper, Sal Mineo, among others, and that is Giant. Uh, Giant, one of the big three film starring James Dean in the 50s uh, and another a film he was posthumously nominated for an Oscar um, is it's 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 a huge movie that spans a large swath of time and you know James Dean is I think one of the best actors to have ever lived and I've only seen him in three films uh, and and he's he's top notch here as well. Uh, I still think um, I still like him the most in Rebel, personally. But I, I think all of his films he's he's shown a wide range of just facial uh, expressions and and real like character and emotion. Uh, this film was nominated for a ton of awards. I don't think it was worth all of them necessarily, but I do think he that it was uh, it was definitely a, a production on of unparalleled scope, probably. Uh, given you know, I mean, unparalleled probably as is, is uh, 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 sort of sort of exaggerating, I would guess. But it's it's a very big film. And not just in size, not just in scale, but also in time. You know, they, the aging effects that they put on Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson and James Dean from, you know, from like their 20s to their 60s is, is not bad. You know, it, it 
you know, it's been 60 years and it's actually aged fairly well, I'd say. Um, you know, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor are, are good. Uh, Hudson took me some time to sort of warm up to. And it was kind of the aging of his character that really drew me into him as, an, as a performance. Elizabeth Taylor was was brilliant and I think matched James Dean step for step uh, and and I was very pleased I, I you know it seemed I guess my, my biggest problem the biggest reason why this doesn't have a higher rating you know it's in the high 70s so I, I gave it I rewarded it very handsomely but the biggest reason why it fails to make make it to 80 is that the scope is not matched by the story now this isn't something like there will be blood with an, an incredibly tightly wound and and of its time brilliantly written story uh it's a good story giant is, is a nice story but it doesn't have the oomph it doesn't have the uh chutzpah it does not have the punch that i think a film of that scope and that magnitude has to have so i was a little let down by that i still liked it i still you know i wasn't bored i wasn't exhausted i didn't feel like the film was overly long uh, i think that the story just needed to be elevated in some sense or trimmed for length i think i think as it is it's very good but i think there are a lot a couple of easy well, I say easy, like like I could do it myself, but a couple um, simple fixes that would that would have made this movie uh, even even greater than I think it is. So that's number three, Giant, uh, with a seventy nine. Number two, another film I have not really mentioned very much is a nineteen fifty two film. Directed by Charlie Chaplin, starring Charlie Chaplin, Claire Bloom, Nigel Bruce, and Buster Keaton, among others. And that is Limelight. Uh, Limelight, I gave an 81. Uh, Moran predicted a 53, so a difference of 28 points. Pretty significant drop there. And Limelight, I, I found to be, at times, boring, but at times, incredibly invigorating uh, there are a couple of moments where you just get to see Chaplin performing on stage in front of an audience uh, or, or in some cases lack thereof and it, it's tough to decide and determine whether or not he, these scenes are being played for comedy or for drama um, they are simultaneously very funny things that are transpiring but it's also there's this level of moroseness and and depressed uh, emotion that comes with this this character this uh, this comedian that Chaplin is playing a Calvero who is fading away in a world where age is your enemy um, where there are no sort of learned and wizened performers that are still gracing the stage. And that's terrifying and traumatizing for Calvero's character. Uh, you know, he, he runs into Claire Bloom, Terry, 
Uh, she's a dancer. She's far much younger than he is. And hit her presence in his life reinvigorates him and drives him back into the limelight, drives him back into his love for performing for the stage. And that's beautiful. I, I think that's a, a beautiful notion. And I think Chaplin executes it incredibly well. And he balances on that line between comedy and drama in a way that most people just can't. Like, I think I think a lot of directors, a lot of writers, they can't even find that line to even play with it. And Chaplin is is great at walking a tight walk right down the center. Uh, and and so I, I very much enjoyed Limelight. I think it's it's one it's it's very incredible. Um, you know, I, I, it's a shame that, that, you know, Chaplin gives this performance his all and he is fantastic in it. He's essentially playing an older version of, of the tramp in a way, but in in another sense, like he could, he makes that character come alive and you know, it, it's not the exact same as the other films that he's been in. It's not, um, you know, it's not City Lights. It's not The Great Dictator. Uh, Limelight is its own entity, and it doesn't really rely on previous knowledge of Chaplin or or his his machinations or sensibilities to become. Um, watchable to become understandable and you know i don't i think you know people talk about chaplin keaton lloyd and kind of just the the sort of trio that uh, sort of owned uh, comedy in in the silent film era and uh, you know i i i don't one, I don't think I'm quite far enough into any of their filmographies to really pick who I think did it the best. Because I think they've all been, I think they're all great. I think they all do an incredible job with, with and, and somehow manage not to really step on each other's toes, despite how interwoven the three names are. But I think right now, as of where I'm at at this moment, I have to give the edge to Chaplin. For, for this late performance that he gives, for this late film that he made, and how the maturity of his performing and of his, uh, his ownership of the stage really came to be. So that's Limelight. Uh, number two with an 81. And finally... You probably would have predicted this, uh, like Moran did at the beginning of the of the uh, at two months ago, <laughs> when I got his predictions. Number one film of this month is a film that came out in 1959, directed by Masaki Kobayashi, starring Tatsuya Nakadai, Michiyo Aratama, Kokinji Katsura, Yun Tatara, and Michiro Minami, among others. It is the sequel to The Human Condition. Damn, I always forget the subtitles of these movies. It is the sequel to The Human Condition, No Greater Love. And that is The Human Condition 2, Road to Eternity. Uh, I gave this film an 89. 
Uh, Moran predicted an 82, so just a difference of seven points, uh, which is absolutely fair. Um, as I gave the first film an 85, uh, six, 86. Um, so very closely rated the two films. Um, the Human Condition 2 is just an extension of this story of Kaji, who is, uh, you know, an incredible character, who has an ideology, who sticks with his ideology, who does not waver, and yet is constantly being pushed into scenarios where he is forced to act against his own interest. Um, from the first film and, and a large part of the second film, it is made very well known that Hakaji opposes war. He is a pacifist. He does not want any part in violence, but yet he is part of the military. He is in the army. He is actually uh, just uh, an incredible soldier. And, you know, he's able to sort of put himself in a position where uh, every other characters, other people in these movies respect him and and treat him as if you know they, they don't care to to comment on his pacifism but they they do respect the extent to which he's willing to obey and follow commands now at various times particularly throughout road to eternity he is presented with these scenarios where he's watching other people commit acts and perform duties that are clearly be without beyond the bounds of morality and that push even his own sort of quiet calm to the brink of eruption. And that is a fascinating depiction of this person. This is a character study uh, of the human condition, like right in the title. And this entire second chapter, which, you know, in a typical trilogy, you see the second chapter being very boisterous, very action-oriented, and to be fair, you know, there's a lot more fighting in this film than there was in the first film, but I think this film really digs out uh, what Kaji is willing to do for his own sanctity, for his own safety, for the safety of his family, and, and what his limits truly are. Um, he, he is unquestionably righteous and, and sanctimonious in the things that he does, but he's, he's not, you know, he's not looking down on you while he's performing these acts. He's not treating you like you're wrong, you know, unless... You know, as long as your opinion is your opinion, along as long as you're not being uh, motivated to acting against sort of the human response, the the human decent like laws of decency, then then you know your opinion is fine, and and I think that's a great sort of purview and and uh, perspective for people to have. You know, like yeah. Right now, the country might be divided by people who support and don't support Trump as president. This, you know, and, and you know, you can stretch that even further onto 
uh, you know, issues of race and gender and sexuality and 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 the and, and money and wealth and and labor and and as far as far as you need to stretch it. And you know, there are plenty of people who are going to disagree with everybody and everyone else. You know, I'm never going to find someone who agrees with me on every single issue that's just not a feasible possibility and so you can't be expected to oppose and hate and and fight with every person you come into contact with that just doesn't make any sense you have to respect that people are going to differ disagree with you and it's those disagreements that bring out the best in society and while I don't know that this film necessarily uh, really hits home on that topic as hard as I wish it had you do after spending at least over six hours with Kaji at this point and three more hours to go I definitely get the sense that like his being and his uh, uh, perspective on life is one that a lot of people could learn from and and take to heart because yeah he's very stout and resolute in his beliefs but he's not condescending and he's not pushing his beliefs on other people until he absolutely has to and that is what makes these films so damn incredible Uh, so the human condition to road for eternity Number one film of May 2017, Scavenger Hunt, with an 89. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Again, I very much apologize for how long uh, it took me to get this episode out to you guys. Um, I will try to be better and do better in the future. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or answers, you can direct those to circleoffilm at gmail.com if you're interested in the podcast learning more about me about the spreadsheet um, and seeing previous episodes uh, you can head over to circleoffilm.com or check out uh, itunes uh, stitcher etc where podcasts are found and as always have a week She's hey.